Hey listeners, I'm Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's Editor-at-Large, and this is FP Playlist. Each week, I aim to help you find your way through the huge maze of podcasts out there by recommending one good one from somewhere around the world. This week, we're featuring Seeking Peace, a podcast from Georgetown's Institute for Women, Peace and Security. It's hosted by someone who knows a lot about these issues, Milan Verveer. For decades, Milan has been fighting for women all around the world, and she sees this podcast as an extension of that work. Hi, Milan. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So tell me about the mission of Seeking Peace and how it got started. Well, Seeking Peace is a production of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. Uh, And we have been working now for several years to spotlight the work of peace builders around the globe, as well as their male allies, uh, in really making the case of how critical uh, women's meaningful participation is in uh, negotiations and relief and recovery and the whole gamut of issues uh, that are critical to conflict prevention, to peace building, and to post-conflict reconstruction. How did it get started? Was this a twinkle in your eye at some point? Where did it come from? Um, So much of what we all do, uh, whether it's foreign policy or us at Georgetown, uh, is confined to um, a strata of decision makers for the most part. And yet these are issues that everybody needs to know about. They need to touch people's lives. And so we were looking for a vehicle to ensure that the public could access these voices, access this work uh, more directly. And so the the possibility of a podcast uh, became real. And uh, we are in our second season. In our first season last year, we focused on a lot of leaders, uh, people like former President Mary Robinson, talking about peace and climate uh, and the role of uh, women and potential displacement and conflict. We had the first woman negotiator of a peace agreement, uh, Monica McWilliams from Northern Ireland. Uh, so to make this accessible in a story way, actually talking directly to people in a way that a far bigger audience could access what this was all about. So you said season one focused mostly on women leaders. Who are you talking to in season two? Well, we have a a number of women leaders as we're concluding season two, uh, but we've also brought in some male allies. Um, The story of Malala Yousafzai, the the Afghan schoolgirl who was shot by the Taliban for advocating for girls' right to education, is pretty well known. People know about Malala, but not so much about her family. What led you to decide to talk to her father? Well, I had been in Malala's company several times. Her father was always with her. Uh, He spoke as eloquently in some respects as she did. And it was clear to me from observing the two of them that he had a profound influence. And then a couple years ago, he and I were on a panel together in Tokyo, and he was talking precisely about the importance of male leadership in terms of really advancing progress for girls and women, but also progress for all of society. Uh, And it just occurred to me, talking to him then, uh, and understanding where he was coming from, and his own evolution, frankly, uh, that that he would be a very interesting person uh, for the public to get to know better. 
you mentioned his evolution. I'd love to hear more about that and, and what's ultimately surprised you about your conversation with him. Well, he, uh, you know, he calls himself a feminist. He, you know, understands the real uh, nefarious side of patriarchy when it exposes itself in ways that keep half the population down. And he saw this firsthand uh, back in his village in Pakistan. And as he was working uh, as a teacher and as someone he wanted to imbue in the life of his family in terms of the importance of education, uh, all of this began to crystallize. Uh, and of course, you, you mentioned uh, that Malala took a bullet, that profound uh, experience of possibly losing your daughter and understanding why her life potentially uh, could come to a close over, you know, what he espoused and what she became devoted to uh, was the ability to get an education and the importance of getting an education. You know, he also raises this broader issue, which is how allies, specifically male allies, um, are such a critical part of the struggle for women's rights. Well, and and that's so right, and that's really why I was eager to have a conversation with him uh, for the podcast, because he has become a vocal advocate uh, for the rights of women, the rights of girls, and how important that is for the lives of all of us. Um, you know, it's why the World Economic Forum, for example, puts out an annual gender gap study. Uh, you know, why should those top economists and leaders care? Because in the end, if we don't tap all of the population of our countries, if we don't close this gap between men and women on critical issues from education and health to the economy and, and political participation, uh, we are not going to prosper. Countries are not going to be competitive. They're not going to do well. And collectively, we're not going to make it. And of course, it's a matter of the right thing to do. It's fundamentally a human rights issue, but it is the smart thing to do as well. Meland Revere, thanks so much for speaking to us. I'm a big fan of you and of the oh, show. Oh, well, um, that's very kind. We're huge fans of FP, needless to say. Here now is Malala Yousafzai's dad on the importance of girls' education from season two of Seeking Peace. From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Ziadin Yosefzai. I'll tell the men that patriarchy is something that it is not only harmful for the girls, it's also harmful for the men. Societies who don't believe in their women and girls, they walk with one leg. Ziadin Yosefzai is a Pakistani educator and ardent advocate for girls' education. He's also the father of Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yosefzai. After Malala was attacked by the Taliban in retaliation for speaking about girls' rights to go to school, Ziadin helped her establish the Malala Fund. Together, they worked to break down barriers keeping other girls from attending school. Thank you to my father for not clipping my wings and for letting me fly. Ziodin also serves 
as a UN Special Advisor on Global Education. We reached Ziodin at his home in the UK to speak about men's role in promoting girls' rights and gender equality. It's a great pleasure and honor to be speaking with you. I tell people that being a daughter's father, and especially Malala's father, I feel so honored and so grateful. She is just a remarkable young woman. You know, she often talks about the fact that you were determined to give her every opportunity that a boy would have in your society. How did you proceed? Did you get questioned by other men in the community? Uh, yes. In the beginning, when I was encouraging Malala, uh, not just to be an educated girl, but to be a girl who is a girl known by her own name. Because I had five sisters and none of my five sisters had an opportunity to receive education. And uh, at that time, we had hardly any school for girls. But also, my parents did not have any big dream for my sisters. They had very tall dreams for me uh, because I was a boy. And uh, for my five sisters, their only dream was to get them married as early as possible. So coming from that patriarchal society, being in that patriarchal family, our people could see the change in my behavior. Uh, I often tell the story that when Malala was born and she was hardly a few uh, weeks uh, after her birth, uh, my cousin brought a family tree. And um, when I looked at the family tree, it was a long list for 400 years and they were all men. And I picked up my pen and drew a line from my name and wrote Malala. I could see the disapproval on his face that he was thinking of me that I was a crazy man putting a girl name on a family tree. Uh, so these were the things in the beginning that people did not like in me. But once they saw the impact of a girl and or activism, uh, I think later on, same people joined us. It's such a graphic description of what it uh, was like in terms of attitudes. But you were teaching uh, at an all-girls school in Pakistan while Malala was growing up. Is that right? Uh, yes. So the school I started, it had uh, a girls' campus and a boys' campus. Uh, in the beginning, uh, girls and boys up to grade 9 and 10 were together. Uh, but unfortunately, when Talibanization started, uh, so we had a pressure uh, from those circles that we must separate girls and boys. So at that stage in 2003-04, uh, we had a girls' high school and a boys' high school. So when the Taliban took over, were girls still able to go to school? I mean, the way they discouraged girls and then they started bombing schools, it's quite a story because in the beginning in 2003-04, they started an FM radio. And that was the beginning of Talibanization. And um, they just uh, started a heinous propaganda against girls' education. And uh, the chief of the Taliban, uh, he used to give sermons and speeches. And most often, he started speaking against girls' education. So he wanted to demotivate parents to send their girls to school. 
And like he used to say in his speeches, he used to name the girls even on his FM radio that, for example, Khadija, Aisha, these girls from that particular area, they have left school in grade five, in grade seven, and I congratulate them because uh, this education, modern education is un-Islamic and these girls are very brave uh, that they uh, quit the school and this will bring blessing to their families in this world and in the afterwards. So, I mean, these were the kind of um, uh, uh, things they were uh, doing in the um, uh, beginning. Uh, later on in 2007, uh, Taliban became very violent and they burned more than 400 schools. And in December 2008, uh, they gave an announcement on their FM radio that no girl will be allowed to go to school, old or young, no girl at all. And if she goes to school, the parents and the manager or the principal of the school will be responsible. So in the context of that very difficult situation that you uh, just described to us, Mal- Malala was speaking out publicly about girls' right to go to school, to have an education. I'm sure that obviously made her a target uh, by some of the, the Taliban. Were you worried about her speaking out? So what happened, basically, the problem was Taliban was so horrible and their fear was so big that nobody wanted to speak. There were few, hardly few people who spoke for the right of peace and the right of education. Uh, And I was one of them. And some of our friends were killed by Taliban. They were killed in target killing. I received threats from Taliban on their FM radio. So in that very environment, when we were speaking, Malala also started speaking. And then she started that BBC blog. And then later on, Uh, We together did the New York Times documentary class dismissed in the Swat Valley uh, that captures the last day when the schools were closed uh, by Taliban. So in the beginning, I was not much concerned. It was more about me. And uh, it was an error of judgment on my behalf uh, that I took it for granted that uh, Taliban have bombed and burnt more than 400 schools, but they didn't harm a child or a teacher. In 2012, January, it was for the first time that uh, I received that Taliban had issued a threat to Malala and to one other uh, human rights activist, and they said that they are in their target. She just said that she wanted education. Education was her right. So we did not... uh, think that they will come after a girl and after a child. Because in Pashtun culture, even in tribal fights, you are not supposed to attack a child and a girl. Uh, So, I mean, culturally, uh, from Islamic point of view, we, we took it for granted, but we were wrong and they came for the worst. And so eventually, Malala took a bullet for a girl's right to go to school. And you lived through that harrowing experience, not knowing if she would survive. Uh, And thank God uh, she did. Uh, But it must have been just uh, some horrible, horrible moment for you and the family. Yeah, of course. It was uh, the most uh, traumatic, the most tragic day in our life. uh, Because uh, 
that very day on uh, 9 October 2012. Uh, it was a normal day, like all days, uh, in a sense that she took a half of the egg uh, in the morning and um, uh, we had quite nice chat uh, at our breakfast. And then she rushed to school because that was the second day of her examination. I went to school and from school, I went to the press club because uh, I was the president of the uh, school's association. And we were uh, like demonstrating uh, a rally over there. And um, being the president, I was the last speaker. So before my speech, uh, I switched off my phone. And meanwhile, my close friend received a call from my school and he was told uh, that something has happened. And then my friend told me that uh, your school bus has been attacked. Those news were uh, like the most horrible news. Uh, my heart sank and uh, I went to the podium. I spoke for a few minutes and then I told the gathering that I have an emer emergency and I have to rush to the hospital. And then I was told by another friend on phone uh, that uh, the school bus has been attacked and Malala and the two other girls have received uh, bullets. Um, I rushed to the hospital and um, when I saw Malala, I just kissed her on her forehead, on her uh, cheeks and I left my home uh, definitely with the hope that in the afternoon I will go back to home. But this uh, never happened. From the press club, I went to the hospital in Mingora. Uh, from Mingora, she was flown in helicopter to Peshawar Army Hospital. And there uh, she got the life-saving surgery uh, that saved her life. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. Well, it's just a, a remarkable story that out of such a terrible tragedy, she has survived and she's gone on now to get her university degree from Oxford. You must be so proud of her. And she has vowed that she will continue the fight that she started when she spoke out there in Swat Valley, that every girl should go to school. So you have stood by her. You have been her strongest support. She has set up the Malala Fund. Can you tell us about the fund and what you are doing with her today? Yes. I mean, as you mentioned that the girl who was speaking for 50,000 girls when Taliban banned girls' education in the Swat Valley is now standing up for 130 million girls all around the world and speaking for their right to education. The terrorists thought that they would change my aims and stop my ambitions. But nothing changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died 
strength, power, and courage was born. She was unstoppable in Swat and she was unstoppable after the attack. And that's why when she was even in the hospital and we had, uh, like she started conversations and she got recovered uh, in the very early days, she was more resilient and uh, uh, braver. She continued her mission and we together co-founded the Malala Fund. This fund, its vision is that every girl should have an access to quality education, that she may choose her future and girls should learn and lead. The fund in the last five years has grown very uh, strong and um, right now we are working in almost eight countries. And now uh, when Malala graduated from Oxford, as you mentioned, uh, now she herself has taken the charge as the chair of the fund. Uh, and I'm so proud of her that at such a young age, uh, now she is leading a global non-profit organization for girls' education. And her dream is to see every girl, every girl in every corner of the world in school. Well, you have been an extraordinary uh, supporter to your daughter and her work uh, as you've described it, is so critically important. And I know this cause has gotten complicated in recent months because of the pandemic. I know that the fund has uh, estimated that some 10 million secondary age girls, um, they may not return to school. It's even more difficult in those fragile states and refugee camps. Uh, and so the work is that much more needed and I'm sure that you have doubled your efforts in that regard. Oh, yes, indeed. I mean, this is very unprecedented and very difficult time uh, for everyone. And uh, especially it's difficult time for education and girls' education. Uh, that's why we need to double our efforts, our struggle, uh, and to highlight that girls' education, this is so important. Uh, and that's why uh, we are reaching to world leaders, we are reaching to organizations uh, that obviously, of course, uh, health is the most important issue, uh, but uh, we should not ignore education in general and girls' education in particular, because this is the most important investment. Uh, we have research together with the World Bank. It was done before pandemic in 2018, uh, two years ago, and it tells that if we educate all girls in the world, primary and secondary, uh, we will add up to $30 trillion towards economy. So you can see that girls' education is very transformative. It helps economies, it helps social uh, values, it brings equality, it helps democracies, it brings peace. Uh, we should be mindful of this fact. Absolutely. And you said that in such a compelling way. Before we close this wonderful conversation, I wanted to ask you about uh, yourself, your own example. Uh, you have been an inspiration to fathers everywhere, I dare say. Uh, but you've also been a tremendous support, a male champion, if you will, 
for progress for women and girls. I read an article, Mr. Yosef Say, in which you wrote in Time uh, that you didn't hear the word feminist until you were 45 years old. But I'm wondering, why is that so important? What do you have to say to your um, fellow males uh, around the world about its importance? What I say, I say from my own experience. I was uh, one of the brothers of five sisters in a very patriarchal society in a village in the north of Pakistan. And education changed me. Education transformed me into the kind of person that I am now. I remember how much important education, my education was to my parents. But my five sisters did not receive an education. And uh, they were even smarter than me. Uh, They could be doctors, engineers, they could be pilots, they could be politicians, leaders. But as they did not receive education, their life ended in a different way. They became mothers very early. Uh, They have children now. And that's why I tell that in many parts of the world, in patriarchal societies, women and girls die as if they were never born. So I believe in education for change. And I have seen this change in my life. The cousin who was critical uh, for entering a girl name of family tree as the biggest supporter. The village where I grew up, I didn't see any girl to be going to school. Right now, there are 500 girls, the first generation of girls who are receiving quality education. It gives me hope. And I can see this change. And I'll tell the men that patriarchy, it is not only harmful for the girls, it's also harmful for the men. Uh, Societies who don't believe in their women and girls, they walk with one leg. When you believe in girls' education, in women empowerment, and gender equality, it not only emancipates women, it liberates men. Beautifully said, and it has been wonderful speaking with you today, Mr. Yosef Say. Uh, and I, I just want to say, you're not just an eloquent uh, spokesperson for the Malala Fund, for the work of your daughter that you have both been so deeply committed to, but also an important example of uh, men's leadership and support and the importance of men championing these issues. So thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you'll continue to do. Please extend our best wishes to dear Malala and Godspeed in all that you do. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you so much. This year, Malala graduated with a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University. And the Malala Fund published a report about girls' education and COVID-19, stating that 10 million secondary school-age girls who were in school before the pandemic will likely not return. You can find out more about the obstacles for girls' education and support the Education Champion Network mission at malala.org. We 
We just heard from Malala Yousafzai's dad on the importance of girls' education from season two of Seeking Peace, a podcast created with Georgetown's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, hosted by Milan Verveer. And that'll do it for this episode of Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to suggest another podcast for us to feature, you can email me at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. Let me close by thanking our show's producers, Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. Thanks, too, to Nolan Schneider for our theme music, and special thanks to Milan Verveer and the production team from Adonde Media for allowing us to air today's episode. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, and I'll see you back here next week. Thank you.